good to be with you, church. My name is Halim Sa. I serve as one of the pastors and elders here at the Stone. We're continuing our look into the most famous sermon ever preached. It's called the Sermon on the Mount. What is the Sermon on the Mount all about? It's about the kingdom. It's about the kingdom of heaven. The Sermon on the Mount is a king declaring what his kingdom is all about. It's a kingdom manifesto. As Tyler talked about last week, Jesus is a king. He's a king who isn't so much asking you to invite him into your life, but he's a king who is inviting you into his life. He's the king of kings. He's the king who upholds all things by the word of his power. How do you treat such a king? In so many ways, we have it kind of all backwards. As Christians, we think sometimes that Christianity is about asking Jesus into our hearts, right? We think that Christianity is about asking Jesus into our hearts, asking Jesus into our own little lives, asking Jesus into our own little kingdom so that he could come in our lives and make our lives better and help us accomplish our own agendas. But what the Sermon on the Mount is showing us is that Christianity is about King Jesus inviting you into his life. It's about a king who is inviting you into his heart, into his mission, and what he's all about. It's about King Jesus inviting us into his kingdom. The Sermon on the Mount runs from Matthew chapter 5 all the way through Matthew chapter 7. He's going to talk about lots of things, address lots of different areas in our lives, and we're going to talk about all of them in the weeks to come. But the unifying theme throughout it all is this. It's about the kingdom. It's about the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is saying, this is what my kingdom is all about, and this is the way that the kingdom citizens, my people, are going to look like. This is the way that they're going to live and aspire to live. The Sermon on the Mount begins with the section known as the Beatitudes, which means blessed, which means happy. We're going to just look at the first Beatitude today, but let's read a few of them so that we can get a sense of the flow. Matthew chapter 5. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. So again, Jesus is teaching about his kingdom, and particularly here, he's describing what the citizens of his kingdom are going to look like. And what's the word that's being used over and over and over again? It's the Greek word makarios. It means blessed. It means happy. Blessed are those. Blessed are those. Happy are those. Happy are those. Over and over and over again. And so from the very beginning, Jesus is making very clear that he wants to bring true happiness that he wants to bring true blessedness to those in his kingdom, that his kingdom is going to be filled with people who are blessed, that his kingdom is going to be filled with people who are happy. In other words, God wants you to be happy. God wants you to be happy. How does that make you feel? Some of you are like, yeah, that's right. Others of you, you feel uncomfortable. God wants me to be happy. 
Psalm 144 verse 15 says, happy are the people whose God is the Lord. Blessed are the people whose God is the Lord. Blaise Pascal, a theologian, mathematician, a philosopher, all around smart guy back in the 1600s once said. He said, all men seek happiness. This is without exception. Whatever different means they employ, they all tend to this end, happiness. The cause of some going to war and of others avoiding it is the same desire in both, attended with different views. The will never takes the least step but to this object. This is the motive of every action of every man, even of those who hang themselves. And don't you find it to be true? This is without exception, Pascal says, that all men seek happiness. Whatever we do in this life, the major life decisions that we make, where are we going to work, who are we going to marry, to the small decisions, what am I going to eat for lunch today, what pair of shoes should I buy, right? Why do we make those decisions? We make those decisions in the pursuit of our happiness. We are happiness-seeking creatures. And Pascal says even the people who hang themselves, What they are in essence saying is, anything is better than this. I would be happier if I didn't have to live this life. Everything we do, every decision that we make, we do in the pursuit of happiness. And so let me ask you a question, church. How's it been going? How's it been going? Are you happy? Are you happy? Has all your pursuit of happiness, has it actually resulted in happiness? Many times we do what we do because at the time we, we believe we think it's going to make us happy, but then what? It doesn't make you happy, or the happiness quickly fades, and so we try again our relentless pursuit of happiness, and as our pursuit of happiness fails over and over and over again, we often look around and look around and we begin to covet. We begin to compare our lives with other people's lives and wonder, man, if I just had what they had, if I could just have that life then I'd be happy. We all do this in our silent, desperate, discontent. We see that person with our dream life and we think, ah, that life, that life, that would make me so happy. It would make me so much happier if, right? What what would make you happier? It would make me so much happier if I were married. It would make me so much happier if I was single. It would make me so much happier if I had a job that I really loved and enjoyed. It would, be, it would make me so much happier if I was skinnier and prettier, if I was more outgoing, if I was more popular. It would make me so much happier if I had more money. It would make me so much happier if I could have children, have a family, or if I had no children, if I was single. We begin to question, doesn't God want me to be happy? If he loves me, then shouldn't my happiness matter to him? This is all of us, without exception. And so to a people who are desperately looking for happiness, to us, a people who are desperately looking for happiness, Jesus starts preaching by saying, I know where true happiness is found. True happiness is found, listen. True happiness, the lasting kind, the unshakable kind, not the kind that we settle for in this world, but the kind that can't be taken away from from you by other people or by changing circumstance. Jesus says true happiness is found. True blessing can only be found where? In my kingdom. In my kingdom, only living under my rule and reign, only living under the submission to this King Jesus. 
Only in his kingdom can true happiness be found. Okay? So then how can I enter this kingdom? I want to be happy. How can I enter into this kingdom? Glad you asked. That's the first beatitude. That's what it's all about. How do you enter into the kingdom of heaven? What's the first step in entering in? This is the very first thing that Jesus wants to think, talk about. Think about this. This is the first real instruction Jesus gave in the New Testament, right? This is in the very first gospel, the gospel of Matthew, in the first recorded sermon of Jesus, the Sermon on the Mount, the very first sentence of the Sermon on the Mount, he's going to say, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's how you get in. In other words, who gets into the kingdom of heaven? Those who are poor in spirit, Jesus says. And do you see immediately how otherworldly this is? The world would say, if you want to get into this club, if you want to get into that organization, that school, what do you need to have? You better have a resume. You need to have a list of things listing out all the reasons why you deserve to get into that place, right? What do you have to offer? But Jesus said, all you need to enter my kingdom is nothing, All you need to enter into my kingdom is nothing. All you need is nothing. Being poor in spirit, realizing your spiritual poverty before God, realizing that you have nothing good to offer this God. This is where everything starts. This is where true happiness begins. And this is the fundamental characteristic. This is the distinguishing mark of a Christian, someone who is poor in spirit. And so for the rest of our time together, let's ask three questions. Poor in spirit, what is it? What does it mean to be poor in spirit? Number two, why is it so difficult to have it? Why is it so difficult to be it, poor in spirit? And number three, what is promised to those who are poor in spirit? Poor in spirit, what is it? Why is it so difficult to have it? And what is promised to those who have it? So first, what does it mean to be poor in spirit? In order to understand what poor in spirit means, first we have to understand what the Bible says about the poor, about the poor. When Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, what he's tapping into and the connection that he's making is to the over 200 times where the Old Testament talks about the poor in some places rather extensively. The fact is, the poor are very close to the heart of God. And the Bible is very insightful in helping us understand the poor. The Bible defines the poor and helps us understand poverty. And Pastor Tim Keller, he says, if you were to sum up all the things that the Bible says about the poor, it essentially tells us two things. The Bible tells us that the poor are facing two conditions. Two conditions that are making them poor and keeping them poor. The first is an economic condition. An economic condition in which whatever the world values, right, the poor have little or none of it. Whatever the world values, money, talent, charisma, the world values all these things, the poor have little or none of it. But that's not all. The poor face a second condition. On the one hand, the poor have little or nothing of what the world values. But on the other hand, even the little that they do have is taken from them. It's not just an economic condition, it's a social condition. It's called exploitation and oppression in the Bible. They are robbed even from the little that they do have because they have no social power to be able to keep it. 
This is the reason why God is always telling his people not only to give to meet the needs of the poor, but to also fight for justice on their behalf. Now, what does all of this have to do with being poor in spirit? And so if to be poor means to have little or nothing of what the world values, to be poor in spirit means that we have little or nothing of what God values. If God values kindness, if he values purity, if he values patience and serving one another, if he values humility, and he does, you and I, we have little or none of it. And that's the condition that we're in when King Jesus invites us into his kingdom. We have little or nothing of what he values. Well, at least we have a little, right? No, remember the second condition. Even the little that we do have is taken from us. Whatever little good that we do have, whatever little good that we're able to do, we're robbed of it. How? By our own selfish ambition. By our own prideful motivation. It's not that we can't ever do good. It's that it never really counts because all of our doing good is tainted by our selfish motivation, at least in some measure. It's always in part so that we could look good, right? What do you do the good that you do? At least in part so that we can look good. We serve in the way that we serve, at least in part in hopes that so-and-so will like us, in hopes that maybe down the road they'll do something good for us and serve us. There's always an angle. Or here's another way to describe poor in spirit. There are two Greek words, two Greek words in the New Testament that's translated as poor. There's one word that describes a person who basically just has to work all day, every day in order to just survive. They have to work all day living paycheck to paycheck just to have something to eat, just to have some shelter. That's poor, right? But that's not the word that's used here in Matthew chapter five. The word that's used here for poor is the Greek word patokos, patokos, and it means to cower and cringe as a beggar. It has the idea of shrinking from something or someone. You can't even lift your eyes and make eye contact with the person that's giving to you. All you can lift is your hand, begging for someone, anyone, to give. Patokos is a picture of someone who has no wealth, who has no influence, no position, no honor, someone who possesses nothing except the rags that they wear for clothing. I don't even know if we could see this kind of poverty in America today. I remember growing up in Korea as a child seeing this kind of poverty. There were these people that without legs and what they did was they just found some scrap pieces of tire and and they taped it and they tied it around themselves and uh, on their bottom and they would literally just just crawl and pull across a heavily populated walkway in hopes that it would just force somebody to stop and take notice and and give to this day, I still remember their smell and the misery on their faces. That's, that's Patokos. You have nothing. You're not holding up a sign that says, we'll work for food. You can't work. You have no strength. You have no ability. You have no skill. Perhaps you have no arms. You have no legs. That's what poor in spirit means. And Jesus is saying, do you want to enter into my kingdom? This is where you have to start, church. Are you poor in spirit? 
Are you poor in spirit? Do you relate with this at all? Or is this just a totally foreign concept to you? Are you holding up a sign to God saying, we'll work for salvation? Are you? God, these are all the things I could do for you, only if you'll save me. Or are you coming to him and saying, I've got nothing, God. Nothing good to offer you. Who has ever given a gift to him that he should be repaid? Only when you say, Jesus, my only hope is you and what you've done. Jesus begins by saying, there's a mountain that you have to scale. There are heights you have to climb. But the first thing that you must realize is that you're on the outside of the kingdom of God and you can't get there on your own. The mountain is too high. The heights are too great. You can't do it. You're utterly incapable in and of yourself to contribute to your salvation or accomplish anything to earn your way into the kingdom. Now, what does this look like in a person? Jesus gives us the perfect picture of it in Luke chapter 18. Luke 18 verse 9. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but he beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. This is what poverty of spirit looks like. When contemplating being let into the kingdom, why you should be let into the kingdom, which of these two people are you? Are you coming to God and saying, of course, God, of course you'll let me in. Look at all these things that I've done. Or are you standing far off? You can't even lift up your eyes. And all you can do when you think about who you are in light of who he is, is just beat your chest and say, God, will you be merciful to me? My only hope is your mercy. My only hope is Jesus. So first, that's what poverty of spirit looks like. Second, why is it so difficult? Why is it so difficult to have poverty of spirit? Why is it so difficult to be, to be poor in spirit? Because listen to what Jesus is saying. He's saying, happy and blessed are the destitute. Listen to that. Happy and blessed are the beggarly. Happy and blessed are those who have nothing and have nothing to contribute. This is so difficult because it goes against the very grain of this world and what it teaches and the things that it values. It goes against the very spirit of this age. This is the very opposite of what the world tells us. The dominant human religion of today is self-reliance. It's self-determination. It's self-actualization. The world's mantra, right, and you've heard this, the world's mantra of today is that the answer is found where? The answer is found within you. To always trust your heart, 
to follow your heart, to never doubt yourself, just believe in yourself. This is why the self-help industry is booming in the world today, and not just in the world, but has crept into the church. The same exact ethic is being taught with just a little bit of God and Jesus sprinkled on top. Some things I read on social media this week from Christians, I read, you are beautiful and you are worthy of good things. Church, you are beautiful and worthy of good things. Sounds very encouraging, right? Uplifting. But isn't the whole point of the Bible that we're not worthy, but that because he's beautiful, he still gives us good things? I read, you were not made to be small, Christian. You were not made to be small sounds empowering, right? Yes, we were. We were made to be small. The Bible says, less of me, God, less of me, more of you. I read, you have greatness in you. God wants you to be free and fulfill your destiny without nothing limiting you. I don't even know what to say to that. Same ethic, right? Same ethic as the world, which is a little bit of God sprinkled in, and it resonates in us. That's why the books sell, right? That's why these podcasts are rated number one, because everything that the world would tell us is valuable, they're confirming. You are great. You deserve great. And God is your ally. He'll make it happen for you. Jesus is saying the only way to enter my kingdom is through poverty of spirit. But we're urged today to develop almost every other kind of spirit except poverty of spirit. There's so much teaching on self-help, how to get better, how to improve, how to get bigger, better, and stronger. There's no teaching on how to get smaller. There's no teaching on how to become less, how to become weak. There's so much teaching on how to become rich. There's nothing on how to become poor. But Jesus is saying only the poor, only the small, only the weak are going to enter into my kingdom. The spirit that the world tries to foster in us is is kind of a middle-class spirit. Middle-class spirit, not a poverty of spirit. What do I mean by that? A person who is middle-class in spirit says, I can do it. I can do it if I work hard enough. While the poor in spirit say, I can't do it. Apart from Jesus, I can do nothing. The middle class in spirit person looks at their sin and says, I could definitely use some help. I'm definitely struggling with that. But I'm not as bad as these other people. But the poor in spirit says, wretched man that I am. Wretched man that I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? The middle class in spirit person says, I can't go to Jesus right now. I can't go to Jesus right now. I have to get my life right first. The poor in, pers- the poor in spirit person says, I could never get my life right unless I go to him first. The middle class in spirit looks at other people's sin and says, oh, I could never do that. How, how, how in the world could they do such a thing? But the poor in spirit person says, oh, Jesus, if it were not for you and your grace, I would do that and much worse. The middle class and spirit person laying in their deathbed, breathing their last, about to face King Jesus on judgment day, tries to cling and grasp onto everything that they've ever done. Well, I went to church every Sunday. I gave, I gave to the poor, I tithe, I went to lots of Bible studies, there's, and there's so many times that I wanted to sin, but I didn't sin, and when I sinned, I asked for forgiveness. I did that, I made sure I did that every time. Why should Jesus let me into his kingdom? Because look, 
I tried my best. Look at all these things that I did for him. What would you say? If walking out these doors, something happened and you're going to meet King Jesus since judgment day and he says to you, why should I let you in? What would you immediately try to grasp to? What would you immediately try to hold on to? Jesus, towards the end of his Sermon on the Mount, addresses these very people. In some ways, I think this is one of the scariest verses in the Bible. Matthew 7, 22. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me you workers of lawlessness. What are these doing? They're claiming a right to enter into the kingdom of heaven based on what? They prophesied in Jesus' name, they said. In other words, they preached and they shared the gospel. They performed miracles in Jesus' name and and cast out demons in Jesus' name. What if there was a demon-possessed person and and you cast them out in Jesus' name? What if you did that? What if there was a blind person? What if there was a lame person and you prayed for their healing in Jesus' name and they were healed? What if that happened to you? What would you think? You would think, man, I must be saved, right? That's what you would think. But no, none of these things, even incredible things, merit you into the kingdom. There's not a single thing that you've ever done, Christian, do you realize even the greatest of things that you could point to and say, surely because I did this. Surely because I was part of that, God will let me in. Jesus says, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you, depart from me. Doesn't that seem harsh? God overreacting? In other words, what didn't they have? Lots of works. They didn't have poverty of spirit. You can't be poor in spirit and start clinging to your own works. In light of the work of the cross, you can't point to all the things that you've done to give you the right to enter into the kingdom. Think about this. Is God overreacting? Here is the work of Jesus. Here is the work of the cross. And then here's your works. You look at the work of the cross and you look at your own works and then you point to what? You point to your works? and say, this is the reason why you should let me in? It's not an overreaction. It's the most prideful, simple thing we could ever do to look at the work of Jesus, to look at your works, and then point to your works to be the reason to merit you into the kingdom. As long as we're clutching on to our own self-importance, as long as we're clutching on to our own righteousness and our own accomplishments, these are the precious treasures of this world, right? What I've done, who I am. As long as I'm grasping onto my morality and all the reasons why I've lived better than these other people, as long as my hand is full of these filthy rags, I won't ever be able to receive the precious treasure of God's grace. As long as we come to him with hands full of things. Happiness is only for those with empty hands, bringing nothing. You can't receive all that he has for you unless your hands are empty. You come to Jesus and you say, my only hope is you. My only hope is your work, not my work. What you've done, not what I've done. 
who you are, not who I am. Nothing in my hands I bring. Only to the cross I cling. You see, Jesus is saying all you have to enter into his kingdom is nothing. But nothing is so difficult to have, isn't it? All you need to enter into the kingdom is nothing. But nothing is so hard to have in this world. Unless what? Unless he shows you his face. Unless he reveals himself to you, then and only then you see this God, you see his worth, you see his beauty, and you think, what am I going to ever offer to him? Look at him. He's beautiful. What am I going to give to him that I should be repaid? Our only hope is that he reveals himself to us, that he shows us his faith. That's what it says in the book of Numbers. The Lord bless you, right? Same word. The Lord bless you and keep you and make his face shine upon you. That's our only hope. And lastly, what is promised to those who are poor in spirit? What is promised to those who are poor in spirit? Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus said, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Theirs and theirs alone, nobody else. The promise is only to to those who are poor in spirit. And he says, theirs is, right? Not theirs will be, but theirs is in the here and now. The promise to those who are poor in spirit is true blessedness, true happiness. The promise to those who are poor in spirit is the kingdom and the king himself, King Jesus himself, right now. Right now. Not just in the future, but in the here and now. And so there are very practical, present implications to our having the king and his kingdom now. It means that you you have his kingdom approval right now. You never have to worry about whether God approves you or not. You know that his love for you and his approval of you is not bound up in what you can do for him, what you can bring to him. Why? Because he invited you in when you had nothing, right? And when you could do nothing, it means that you have his kingdom freedom right now. Kingdom freedom right now. You don't have to live in shame and guilt anymore. You don't have to try to hide your unworthiness anymore. You sin, and immediately what happens? Shame and guilt sets in, right? We want to hide. That's what it tells us from the very first time that sin entered into the world. Sin enters when we want to hide because God is holy, because God is righteous. And Satan tries to use that shame and guilt to keep you from God. But don't you see the very weapon that Satan has against you, your shame, your guilt, your sense of unworthiness, your sense of worthlessness, is the very thing that God wants in saying those who feel unworthy, those who think they have nothing to offer, those who are poor in spirit, I have for you not condemnation but mercy. I have for you the kingdom, the very doorway in which Satan wants you to enter and receive condemnation. God has designed for you to receive your salvation. So you see, Jesus isn't pointing out our poverty of spirit to us, right? Our unworthiness, our sinfulness, not to shame us, not to condemn us, but so that he can bring you to the fullest blessing and the most lasting happiness of seeing Jesus as great. You see, only to the extent to which we see the greatness of our sins, we'll see the greatness of our Savior. Do you guys see that? If you, only to the extent, if we think our sins are small, we'll see Jesus as small. 
If we see our sins to be great, we'll see Jesus to be great. Only when you realize that you're a greater sinner than you ever thought, that's when you'll realize that Jesus is a greater savior than you ever dared to believe. And in closing, how can the poor in spirit be invited in? How's it even possible? If God is that holy and we're this sinful, how's it even possible that we're let in? Only because at the cross, we see that Jesus was the one who truly became poor in spirit, right? That's how. Because at the cross, we see that Jesus is the one who truly became poor in spirit as he who knew no sin became sin on our behalf. The one of infinite worth became worthless for us so that we might be counted worthy and be let in. As the eternal son of God lost his father and cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He lost his father so that we might gain a father and be let in. And as the matchless king was stripped of his robe and stripped of his dignity and was was crucified naked, he became naked so that we who were naked might be clothed with his righteousness and be let in. At the cross, Jesus gave us his worth. At the cross, Jesus gave us his father, his righteousness. That's how the poor become rich. That's how the miserable become happy. Only because Jesus, though he was rich, truly rich, yet he became poor, truly poor, so that we might, by his poverty, become rich and gain a king and gain a kingdom, and gain a kingdom people. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this king. We thank you for this king who has shown his face to us and revealed himself to us in such a way that we could see his beauty, so that we could see his worth, and for those in the room who have not yet seen him in this way, Lord, oh Father, we ask that you would show your face, that you would reveal yourself, that you would bless them, that you would keep them by shining your face down upon them. And when the sense of unworthiness sets in in light of your worthiness, when the sense of our own ugliness sets in in light of your beauty, when the sense of our own poverty sets in in light of your wealth, Lord, we thank you that that's when you offer your invitation for us to come in. We thank you for your kindness. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for your patience. And not requiring good things from us, what can we ever give to you, God? Father, let us be forever changed by this reality that the King of kings and the Lord of lords in inviting us in requires nothing because he himself accomplished it all. Lord, we give you all the praise. 
Father, help us to worship you in such a way that could only come from those who are poor in spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.